0: Hello, and welcome back to Undressed Historia, a podcast that discusses women in history and their legacy. I'm your host, Margot Collins. So I wanted to take a few minutes first to apologize for being off schedule. I started a new job this month, and I'm still getting used to a new schedule and the longer commute. I hope I can get back on schedule soon, but I just wanted to say thank you for all your support so far. This episode is a bit different than my previous episodes, as I'll be discussing a group rather than one individual. I have two reasons for this. One is that I'm currently stuck in my research for the woman I planned next, but I'm working around it and I just needed a bit more time. And two, we were canceling our Hulu subscription, so I finally had to sit down and watch Harlots before I lost access. I watched season one of Harlots in like two days and I loved it. I can't wait for season two, and I'll probably have to get Hulu back whenever it comes out. But after I finished watching the show, I kept thinking about it and had some questions on its historical accuracy, but mostly I loved the main character of Margaret Wells and her observations on the sex trade and women in general in 18th century London. So much so, that I wanted to do an episode on women sex workers of 18th century London. This episode is not focused at all on the show. So I really won't be mentioning it that much. However, there are a few quotes from the show that I will share as it ties in with what I'm going to discuss today. But don't worry, there are no spoilers for those who haven't watched it yet. Just one more thing before we get started. Let me know what you think of this episode because when I first started planning out my podcast, I wanted to do an episode like this every once in a while, either every five or 10 episodes or one in between series. But I wanted to discuss how women are portrayed in historical settings in TV or games. Guideless on Netflix is also something I wanted to discuss. So let me know if you like this episode and want me to do this again, or if it's a terrible idea that should not be repeated. So, without further delay, enjoy! Harlots is set in 1763, and it opens with a text across the screen that states, at that time in London, one in five women made a living by selling sex. To me, that seemed like a believable number, and a lot of sources I read had the same statistic. But that fraction is still an estimate. As you can imagine, it was difficult to get an accurate number. More conservative numbers were about 3,000 women, and others at 50,000. One thing was certain to men visiting London, sex workers seemed to be everywhere. In Frederick Wilhelm von Schultz's Letters from London, published in 1792, the author wrote with disbelief, quote, so soon as the streets are lamp-lighted they begin to swarm with street girls who well got up and well dressed display their attractions certain it is that no place in the world can be compared with london for wantonness the number of evening and night prowlers is so unbelievable End quote prostitution of course existed in other major cities in europe But in places like Paris and Amsterdam, it was more controlled and contained, as well as more discreet. I unfortunately didn't have enough time to research the full difference between London and Paris, or another European city, to see just how limited or contained prostitution was in terms of geography. But as for London, sex workers could be anywhere. A common Fleet Street phrase, as recorded in a book titled, Pretty doings in a Protestant nation in 1734 was, quote, Where the devil do all those bitches come from? End quote. That should give you an idea of just how numerous the women were. Now, one district in particular should be mentioned. It's called Covent Garden. The reason why I'm bringing up that location is because from the years 1757 to 1795, there were annual publications entitled Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies, which described the appearance and talents of over 100 prostitutes who worked in and around that district. I will provide links in the show notes for some of these editions I found online. I read some of these, I guess reviews, and was sad, disgusted, but yet still intrigued at the same time. I was also reminded of how much I admire 18th century writing, as they can make the most poetic verses out of the least romantic things. So I'm going to read two excerpts. So you have an idea of what they were saying and how they said it. The ones I chose were rather safe. Some had way too many innuendos than I would have liked and now can't get out of my head, but I guess that was the goal. The first one was about a Miss Brown. Quote 'Tis "'Tis just four years since this lady was fit for service, and it's just as long since she has been in actual employment. Most of her time has been in the city, but finding her commodity getting stale in that market, she opened her shop at a different part, where her business soon increased. Indeed, she refuses neither men nor money, and we are told... But we hope without much foundation that she is remarkably fond of the gin bottle. She is fat with light hair and a pretty sparkling blue eye. Her teeth are but indifferent, but the smell of the juniper takes off every offense that the teeth may occasion and makes her a desirable piece. So this Miss Brown was young, fit for service, implying around 15 years old, I'm guessing as that was considered about the age of puberty for girls. Bad teeth were an indication of disease, so many of the reviews mention the teeth. The last one I'm going to read is about a woman who I'm calling Miss Diver. The publications take out all the vowels in the names, and I can't guess what DVR should be. And the first two lines are a poem, which a lot of these had. Quote, She moves quite a goddess self created, but for the chink she is not better faded. This lady is tall, rather thin, and genteel. Her eyes and hair are dark. She is about 19 years of age. Miss aims much at the fine lady, and is very fickle in the choice of her admirers, fancying herself something superior to mortal, and that she should be idolized like a goddess. Notwithstanding the refined notions and her extraordinary delicacy, she can seldom persuade any of her visitors to present her with more than a single one pound one. End quote. So it seems here that this young woman had aspirations to be a kept mistress to a wealthy man, someone who could provide her with the nicer things like rich clothing and jewels. Sadly, we don't know what happened to her, so maybe she did find such a man. Or not. Quick side note, the show mentions these publications, and actually, it was based on them from what I read. Also, when I say harlots, I'm talking about the show. I'm not calling the sex workers harlots. Now, back to history. Who were these women, and how did they end up on the streets and body houses? Which means brothel, for those unfamiliar with the term. Well, there were a multitude of ways, and they range from socioeconomic reasons to being sold or tricked or kidnapped into prostitution. There aren't many sources from the 18th and early 19th centuries that go into how, but what we do have paints a complex picture. The majority of these sex workers were born in the poorest areas of their communities, and they didn't have many skills that would help them get out of poverty. For example, the night of the 1st of May, 1758, 25 prostitutes were arrested and questioned, and of 22 out of the 25 stated that their parents were either dead or had deserted them. We also have a record from 1817 to Parliament that stated that many prostitutes used to be maids, servants, orphans, and some who had only one parent and they needed the work. There were women who had formerly worked in the clothing industry as milliners, dressmakers, shoe binders, and so on, that were forced into prostitution due to a lack of work as the industry became more and more dominated by men. There were former servants who had been let go without money or a reference. Some others also sold fruit or flowers in the street. So, poverty had been a major cause, and in some cases, women had an ambition for riches, fine clothes, and fame, which did happen, but that was rare. Some others had been, quote, seduced and then basely betrayed, end quote, meaning a lover in their youth or even rape that resulted in public-ish knowledge that they were what I'll insensitively call spoiled goods, Remember, this was the 18th century where women were expected to remain virgins until their wedding night. And this didn't go completely unnoticed. Essayist and playwright Richard Steele in 1712 blamed men for a women's descent into prostitution. Steele wrote that men would delude these, quote, "'little, raw, unthinking girls,' and leave them after possession of them without any mercy to shame Infamy, Poverty, and Disease," end quote. Others, like Daniel Defoe, blamed the economy. Written a few years before Steele, Defoe stated that many women were forced into it in order to survive. And while there were many factors, economic need was up there. As evidence of some women, including married women, who worked the trade either part-time or as needed. And now to get into even darker cause, one of the quote, key agents for entry into the trade end quote, would be a bod. For us Americans, we call them madams. It's a woman who runs a brothel. Some bods would intimidate, decoy or charm unsuspecting and vulnerable girls into prostitution. Many of these bods were formal prostitutes themselves who were too old or too sickly to keep selling themselves. They would lure these young women in through deceit and false promises, and then kept them through debt. In one publication in 1752, in the Covent Garden Journal, there was an article of a young girl who was taken in by a baud and given clothes and then hired out to men. The baud kept most of the money earned and threatened the girl that if she escaped, she would be arrested for the debt she owed for the clothes. Now, before we vilify these bods, just take into account that they did what they had to do in order to survive, especially those who didn't save up enough money during their active years. These bods were feared, hated, mocked, and sometimes admired and respected. Whether bods actively participated in tricking women into prostitution Or if they ran a house and women approached them, they were part of the sex trade. One quote from harlots said by the main Baud was, The city is made of our flesh, we'll have our piece of it. In other words, it's happening anyway, might as well earn as much as one can. These profits could have been huge depending on the area and number of sex workers even more money could be made by selling off a girl's virginity child prostitution did occur in london in the 17th and 18th centuries this did and still does occur in other places in the world but again i'm concentrating on london at a specific time a prussian man named archenholtz a well-known history professor and publicist remarked in the early 1780s that he felt quote, "surprise" Mingled with terror that girls from eight to nine years old make a proffer of their charms. End quote. There were even some brothels that had underage girls as prostitutes, and one in particular called the Temple of Aurora quote, supplied girls as young as eleven to the rich. End quote. In 1758, magistrate Sir John Fielding concluded the following on the child sex industry in London. Remember that group of 25 prostitutes that I had mentioned earlier that had been arrested on the 1st of May of 1758? Well, 13 of them were 18 or younger, and there were three 15-year-olds. Another night when 40 sex workers were arrested, the majority of them were under the age of 18, and many not much older than 12. These girls ended up on the streets and brothels due to parental death or abandonment, as well as being sold by their parents and grandparents, either ignorant or purposely, to the sex industry. One case in 1766 was of a married couple who were arrested for selling their niece to a sea captain. I don't want to go too off topic here, so that's all I'm going to say for child prostitution. And also, I want to mention that there were men sex workers that catered to women, And of course, there was homosexual prostitution as well. Now, for the next thing I'm going to talk about, I want to be clear that I am not romanticizing female prostitution. And Harlots doesn't romanticize it either. The show gives a very real experience through the perspective of women. However, there is something liberating about these women in this time period. And it's not about sexual freedom, but rather independence or eventual independence. And I can really only explain it in the context of marriage in the 18th century. Once a woman got married back then, everything belonged to the husband. For example, if a woman from a wealthy family got married, the money that was technically hers was legally her husband's. And she couldn't inherit property unless there were no male heirs. She couldn't pass off any possessions via will, or or otherwise, unless the husband consented. And they otherwise ceased to legally exist independently from their husband. Which for the UK didn't change until the Married Women's Property Act of 1882. Widows and women who were never married, which let's remember there was a stigma about the latter, were of the few who could have their own independence and identity. For all the unfortunate origins of a woman entering prostitution, the money and items she possessed were hers, which many married women couldn't say the same for themselves. And we sort of see this viewpoint in the show. A widow tells a character that she is free now that her husband is gone. And that's the word she used, free. In another scene, a character says the following, quote, And to have a man own everything she earns, I wouldn't wish marriage on a dog, end quote. There's one final quote I want to use from the show, which I think is a great observation on the time in regards to women and independence, and then I'll move on to my final point. This is said by the main bod, quote, Money is a woman's only power in this world. Make it your solace and your dream, and one day, wealth, real lasting wealth, will make you free. End quote. Now, to wrap this up, I want to discuss a specific work of art that illustrated what kind of life some of these women led. It's called A Harlot's Progress, and it is a series of six paintings from 1731 by English artist William Hogarth. The paintings have been destroyed, but the engravings still exist, and it depicts a sex worker named Maul or Mary Hackabout throughout parts of her life. And what I like about them is that they don't blame the woman for her sinful or immoral life, but rather she's portrayed as a victim, and it illustrates the problems of society at the time. So I'll post the images in the show notes and on social media for reference. I highly recommend looking at them and I'm not going to go into all of the symbolism that is depicted. So please take a look. So in the first image, we have two women in the forefront. One is Moll, newly arrived in town in a white dress and luggage. And on her arm is a pincushion, and she's holding scissors, implying that she's searching for work as a seamstress. The other woman is an actual person from history, a notorious bawd named Elizabeth Needham. In the image, she's touching Maul's face, while two men look over at them from the doorway of a brothel. In the background is a clergyman on a horse, staring at a piece of paper in his hand, probably a sermon, so he's not seeing what's going on at all, so there is no one to step in and rescue her. The next image is a very different Maul, She's now the kept mistress of a wealthy merchant. She's wearing very nice clothing, albeit disheveled. She's kicking over a table to distract the merchant, while in the background, a maid is sneaking out Maul's lover. It's not the life she thought she'd have, but it's much better than her future. In the third image, her lodgings are very shabby, so she's lost her merchant and is now living as a common prostitute. We don't see much furniture, implying she doesn't have much money, but we do see medicines, most likely for syphilis. In the background, we see a group of men entering the room to arrest Maul for prostitution. In the fourth image, Maul is in jail, beating hemp for hangman's nooses. Her jailer is next to her, holding a stick to threaten her to do her job, while his wife is looking to steal Maul's dress. We see other women and a child in the prison with her, possibly for the same crime. In the fifth image, Maul is dying of syphilis. She still has her faithful maid with her, who is currently trying to take care of her, while we see two doctors arguing over which medicine would be best for Maul. We also see a woman going through Maul's trunk, probably the landlady looking for valuables to cover Maul's rent. There's also a child sitting on the ground, scratching his head, probably due to lice. The sixth and last image is Maul's funeral. The coffin lid, which is also where people are putting their drinks on top, shows that she died at the age of 23. Most of the sex workers present are drinking or stealing from the men in the room, while others look angry at how disrespectful they're being. There is one other figure the eye is drawn to, and that is of a young sex worker in mourning, possibly that of her friend, or that the same fate awaits her. The engravings are interesting to see, and again, I'll put them up so you can see them, or just Google a harlot's progress. So that's really all I wanted to say on the subject for now. This started as me binge-watching Hulu's Harlots, and I just kept thinking about the topic, and wanted to do a quick episode on it. And I ended up learning a lot in my research. Again, let me know what you think about this episode, as it's different than what I've been doing, and I'm interested in doing this again. So let me know what you think, either on Twitter, Facebook, or email. As for the next episode, expect it soon. I'm still working on it as I hit a snag in my research, but I'm hoping to get it out before my work trip to Chicago. Otherwise, it will have to be after I return. Thank you all for listening. I recently got a bunch of new listeners, so thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. And say hi on Twitter. I need to be more active there. With this episode concluded, I request that you review my podcast on iTunes and any other app you get your podcast from. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated, and I can be reached by email at undressedhistoria at gmail.com. As well as other social media platforms. Undressed Historia is researched, written, and produced by me, Margot Collins. Music used in the intro and outro is from Juke Deck. Create your own at jukedeck.com. If you enjoy this podcast, you can follow me on the following social media platforms to stay up to date on everything happening. Our Instagram and Facebook is Undressed Historia Podcast. And Twitter is Historia underscore pod. Thanks again and tune in next time.